welcome everybody to another edition of Year Zero, the Trillbillies mini-series about political economy, history, and all those other fun things you can bring up at your socially distanced barbecues and Zoom conference calls to make people think that you're smart and well-read. Today we're going to be joined by Timothy Mitchell, author of a book called Carbon Democracy, to talk about oil. And there's a few things going on in the world right now that I think make this episode relevant. As I speak, there are wildfires spreading all throughout the American West. The Gulf Coast is being slammed by one hurricane after the next. Humanity and its fossil fuel-driven economy has wiped out 60% of the world's animal population since 1970. I mean, obviously, the through line here is climate change, of which oil has played a massive part. But the story of oil isn't simple or one-dimensional. In fact, you can understand a lot about how our current economy works and about how the global economy was restructured after World War II, through the lens of oil and energy politics. So Tim is going to walk us through how the coal and steam-based economy of the 19th and early 20th centuries offered workers opportunities for political contestation. He's going to tell us about how the transition to an oil-based economy offered governments and capitalists a way to fight back against those workers. And he's going to tell us about how the oil economy altered the composition of the working class itself throughout the 20th century. We're also going to be talking about how oil was central to the pivot to a different kind of economy in the 1960s and 70s that we now refer to as neoliberalism, that lovely word we all know and love. And we're going to be talking about what the future of energy politics might offer for workers, leftists, environmentalists, I mean, pretty much anybody concerned about making the world a better place. But just before we begin, I'd like to remind you all that you can go and support the Trillbillies at www.patreon.com slash Party, where for the price of just $5, you'll find an episode every Sunday to help keep you sane, and to help us keep producing content like this for free. So without further ado, let's hear from Timothy Mitchell, author of Carbon Democracy and professor of Middle Eastern Studies at Columbia University. So this week on the show, we've got Timothy Mitchell, professor at Columbia University, uh, the author of a book called Carbon Democracy, among many other things. Um, Tim, how are you doing today? Good. Good. Great. Thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah. The thanks for agreeing to do this. Um, I think when I first set this up with you, I, I told you that uh, one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you is because I grew up in an oil region um, in southeastern New Mexico and uh, West Texas. And, I, and I, f- I really felt like your book kind of revealed a lot to me about how oil economies work, but really more generally how fossil fuel economies work. Um Of course, now I live in another extractive region. I live in eastern Kentucky, which is mostly a coal region. Um, And so when I first moved here, I was noticing all kinds of similarities and differences and wondering, like, why why is there more of an ingrained 
union culture in the coal regions as opposed to the oil regions. And those things really didn't click with me until I read your book um, and started thinking about the nature of the resource itself. Um, you know, what is pulled out of the ground, how it is done, how it's distributed, transported, and the kind of politics that that can give rise to. So I, you know, I, I know that your book mostly focuses on the Middle East and Latin America a little bit, but I think it still contained a lot of, you know, revelations about how I can understand my world. So I thought it could do the same for, for other people. So I think that like, since we've kind of got that out of the way, I think I want to like zoom out. Um, I've been doing this project that ever since the pandemic started, I've been trying to like uh, help myself and help others kind of understand what's going on. This will be the second installation in a series. The first installation was about Irigi, Giovanni Irigi. And so I wanted to do this because this helps us understand what is uh, going on, I feel like, because you can't understand how the neoliberal economy was constructed without understanding oil. So, you know, before all this pandemic began and the economic chaos, things weren't even really looking good for oil even then. And then, of course, the pandemic started and global oil demand collapsed. So I thought that, like, maybe we could talk about some recent politics and then we can go from there back through the sort of history and everything. So, as I mentioned to you, uh, you know, as everybody knows, I think, in April of this year, uh, the price of oil went below zero dollars a barrel. <laughs> um, I believe it kind of settled at one point around negative forty dollars, which I think is pretty insane and, and unprecedented. I think literally, right? Um, and uh, so I know I'm sort of simplifying things here, but I, you know, I think the vast majority of people they see something like that and they're like, you know, how do I even make sense of that? What does that even mean? So you know, in a sort of succinct way, yeah, can you tell us what it means for the price of oil to go negative and more importantly, why that happened? Well, for the price to be negative, it means that people who have oil, instead of being able to sell someone, uh, sell that oil to someone for a price for $40 a barrel or $50 a barrel, they actually found themselves having to pay people to take it off their hands. And so the, the minus $40 or minus $38, whatever it was, was the amount they were having to pay for people to take the oil from them. Why did that happen? Well, part of the story obviously is the one you mentioned, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, the glut of suddenly vast amounts of oil at a moment when uh, caused by the, the drop in demand. But for actually to go negative, uh, some funny things had to happen. First of all, there's a, an oil market of oil producers and oil traders who have oil and sell it as they produce it. And, and there's the price of that oil that, that, that's sold at, at the time of production. But there's another whole market built on top of that, which is the market in oil futures, traders, speculators who trade contracts for future oil. And that exists in other commodities as well. It didn't exist in, in oil until roughly the 1980s. It has certain benefits to the producers because they can sell those contracts either for, for oil they know they're going to be producing in six months' time or two months' time and get a price in advance and, and sort of hedge against fluctuations in the market. But of course, at the same time, it becomes this opportunity for speculators, investors, traders to make money out of the ups and downs because you can bet both ways on what's going to happen to the price. And it was those people who got caught 
holding oil um, that they had to pay people to take off their hands. So it wasn't actually the oil producers themselves, and it wasn't even those who uh, buy the oil because they're going to refine it and distribute it and so on. It was the speculators. Right. And interestingly, as I said, there's been a futures market since the roughly the, the mid-1980s, but the people who were caught holding this oil were not professional oil traders, the people who buy and sell oil on the New York Mercantile Exchange. About 10, 15 years ago, there came a new way to trade oil. You could trade it the way you exchange shares on the stock market. So rather than being on a commodities exchange, you could go into the stock market because finance, uh, financial firms, one particular financial firm, set up a fund where ordinary retail investors could buy and sell shares in this fund that earned oil. And it was those people who ended up, so they weren't even professional oil traders. Right. They were retail investors who got caught. And that's why you suddenly, and they got caught because, you know, they weren't the, the professional oil traders. And they actually owned 25% of, of the oil futures on the market that were coming due that month. And so, you know, the, the larger story from that is that, yes, there was an unprecedented uh, collapse in demand for oil because of COVID. But there was also um, uh, a, a story of finance and financial speculation and the emergence of this method of selling ordinary investors shares in oil. And they were the people who, who suddenly found themselves with with um, large amounts of oil that, that they had to. They bought the futures contract, but the futures contract came due and they suddenly had to take physical possession of the oil. They couldn't do that. They right. were just retail investors. Well, uh, you know, so you mentioned that Prior to, I think you said the early 1980s, there wasn't a futures, oil didn't trade on that market. Well, you know, why is that? Does it have something to do with the, the sort of way that uh, oil has traditionally been extracted and distributed and sold? Yes. So one of the, the things about oil and the whole history of oil going back um, 150 years since the beginnings of the oil industry is that oil is abundant. It comes out of the ground in enormous quantities, but it's found in relatively few places around the world. And many of those places are in the US and of course also in the Middle East and parts of Latin America, Africa and so on. Because it isn't found in many places, it became possible early on for a small number of producers to take control of all the key production sites. And of course, that's the story going back to John Rockefeller, Standard Oil, and the rise of his monopoly. Standard Oil is what's today ExxonMobil, and a handful of other companies, um, Shell, BP, and so on, Chevron, as it would be known today. Yeah. Those companies managed uh, in the late 1930s, 20th century to take control of oil pretty much everywhere that it was produced, at least outside what became the Soviet Union. And that meant you didn't need an oil market because all oil was around the world was in the control of these large companies. And they not only control production, but they control distribution and they control marketing. And so the price was set internally by those companies, e either within their own, with their own subsidiaries or with long-term contracts by those they sold it onto. So you didn't need any kind of, of oil market, some place where futures were exchanged or even uh, actual oil was exchanged. 
until that system was broken up somewhere in the in the 1970s. Right. That's why you didn't have these kinds of of, uh, uh, of issues back then. You didn't have a futures market in oil. One of the things about your book is that it is always essentially dispelling conventional narratives and accounts, right? We have this standardized account of how a thing is. For example, the OPEC oil shock, and that gets reported by the U.S. media, and then everybody sort of metabolizes it and goes on with their day. Um, one of the things that you talk about is how the conventional story of the OPEC oil shock of the 70s that you just sort of mentioned didn't have so much to do with the price of the oil itself. It had more to do with simply the tax that the oil, the OPEC producing countries were wanting to put on that oil. So maybe because, you know, I sort of mentioned this, uh, you know, maybe for the uninitiated, can you maybe talk about OPEC and and how it is related both to what's going on right now and, and its sort of history? Yeah, so OPEC was founded in 1960, Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and a few other smaller producers. Iraq was one of the other original founders. They actually modeled themselves on the way oil producers had organized in the US, which of course is where the oil industry had grown up. And what the oil ministers of these countries discovered was that in the US, there was a whole system of organized price fixing for oil. And it was actually run by a body that still is uh, influential today, which is the Texas Railroad Commission. Right. Oil was mostly moved by rail, and the Railroad Commission set the prices at which oil could be traded. And they set it at a high enough price to ensure a profit to those producers, especially as they risked being undercut by cheaper oil arriving from elsewhere. And these, um, as producer countries elsewhere developed their oil production, they, they saw how the Americans did it. And they said, well, that's a good system. You don't allow the the market to set the price of oil right. because it, it will go down down to the, the lowest bidder. You you form a club of the producers or some arrangement, some organization of producers. A cartel. And you set the price. So that's what OPEC wanted to do. It wanted to arrange collectively a better deal. They couldn't actually directly set the price because, as I just mentioned, the price was set by the international oil companies who actually controlled the production. So those countries that formed OPEC, some in the Middle East and, uh, and then Venezuela, had an arrangement where the, the private American and British oil companies produced the oil and paid a tax or some combination of royalty and tax to the government of the producer countries. And so what they wanted, those countries, was actually to increase that tax. They said, we want to, we, we want a, a different tax rate because so much of the profit is going to the companies. We can't tell what that profit is because there's no actual market where you can see prices. So they, asked, they, they began demanding a higher share of that money. The oil companies were very clever because they set that tax by using a benchmark price. And the, whatever the benchmark price was, was the way that tax was calculated. The benchmark didn't correspond to any actual prices at which oil changed hands. But it became a dispute over this benchmark. So 
to consumers and the media in the West, this was presented as a fight over a price, a benchmark price. It was actually not a demand for a higher price for oil. It was a demand that more of the profits from the oil go to the countries whose oil it was. But it was seen in the West as an attempt by greedy producer countries to increase the price of oil. So that was the sort of first misunderstanding about OPEC and what became known as as, as the, the oil crisis of 1973-74. It wasn't an attempt to raise prices. It was an attempt to to increase the share of that oil income that went to the producer countries. By portraying it as an attempt to increase prices, it became much easier for those oil companies to then avoid suffering an impairment to their profits by saying, well, the producers are demanding a higher price. We have to pass that price on to the consumers. And so that's what ultimately happened. The consumer price quadrupled so that the the tax rate charged by the producer countries could increase. But in the West, that was understood as somehow some price increase forced by um, oil producing states rather than a battle over the distribution of the shares of the of the profits. So like if you're trying to understand why the price of again the price of oil went below zero, you've also you've got that financial aspect of it, but you at the same time you've also got these larger sort of geopolitical occurrences, uh, developments. One of the things that you hear about is that the price of oil went below zero is because uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia were engaged in some sort of production quota battle. They flooded the market with oil. Demand, you know, is, is there any truth to that, or what is the what is the story there? How does it relate to this? Yes. So OPEC uh, was, is famous for that political series of events in the 1970s, but but continued to exist and uh, continue to represent the interests of those key producer countries in, in, in the Middle East and elsewhere, Latin America and Africa. It, it sort of came back to life in an important way over the last decade when the, first of all, the price of oil went way up after, uh, after 2006. And as a consequence of that, the production of the oil, of oil in the U.S. was able to increase dramatically right. because with the much higher price of oil, you know, oil that had been trading $20 a barrel, $30 a barrel was suddenly trading at over $100 a barrel. It became possible to produce oil in West Texas and elsewhere that you mentioned, so-called tight oil, sometimes called shale oil, from uh, from formations that normally it was not economic to produce oil from. So there was this enormous surge in the production of oil, pro- uh, um, uh, provoked by the, this increase in the price. The trouble was that as the price began to settle down again, that production of oil was no longer was not profitable and the saudis seem to have realized that they could actually increase their own share of oil and the share of the the russians with whom they worked on this if they just brought the price down a bit it was one thing when price, when oil was priced at 60 or 70 dollars a barrel but if it came down below 50 it was thought that the american oil would not be profitable and they could put uh, uh, put those producers out out of business, and so that was essentially what was happening 
over the last several years, the Russians and got together with OPEC, so group grouping that became known as OPEC Plus, OPEC Plus Russia, and they agreed to pump more oil in order to flood the market and bring the price down and attempt to create problems for these very high cost uh, producers of, of, of tight oil, of fracked oil in the US and regain their own share of production. So, I mean, you could say in some ways that their ability to do this now and their ability to do this in the 70s does represent a form of what you call sabotage, right? Or, I mean, it's not it's not one-to-one. I mean, they're not completely disrupting flows and, and extraction, but they are able to wield their power to control the distribution of oil worldwide. And there's something about the nature of oil itself that lends itself to that ability to, as you say in the book, sort of wage sabotage on your competitors or on, you know, the Western imperial powers or whatever. Could you talk a little bit about how this compares, I guess maybe maybe I'm dialing too uh, hard into recent history. Maybe if we go back to the sort of 19th century and we talk about coal production, that like that to me is the best way to sort of go into this, to talk about the sort of history of sabotage and to talk about uh, coal production and how that gave form to or gave rise to forms of political contestation. And, uh, and, and yes, uh, so I mean, so like talk a little bit about that. Talk a little bit about uh, how coal production relates to to that well I, I think it's useful to go back because the term sabotage has a very interesting history nowadays we associate it with sort of acts of violence to 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 blow up some some vital installation of some sort right but that's not how it was originally used it came into use a little bit before the first world war but then because of the war immediately afterwards it took on those sort of military connotations what sabotage referred to when it first became um, used as a political term was the ability to disrupt some sort of complex technical process by some relatively minor intervention in it that made it impossible to for, for the technical process to to happen and it was a word that became very important for understanding how political power itself worked in the industrialized world question who actually had the power of sabotage the power of interrupting industrial processes in order to make some demand and you can think of history right through the industrial period as a sort of shifting battle over who's going to have the power of sabotage. Is the power of sabotage going to be in the hands of workers or is it going to be in the hands of business? Um, And you can see different times when each side has this ability to to sabotage a process in order to make demands. It's easier to see when it was in the hands of workers. Um, And so in in the book Carbon Democracy, I talk about this by going back before the history of oil to the history of coal, because I wanted to understand the difference between coal as a dominant source of energy and oil as a major source of energy. Because, you know, at the time I was writing the book and researching it, there was a lot of talk about how oil seems to be very bad for democracy. Countries that 
produce a lot of oil seem to be very undemocratic. Why is that? What is it about having some abundant source of, of some critical material that, that seems to impede the emergence of democratic politics? And I thought it'd be useful to think about that by going back to the 19th century in coal, because you had a parallel in the emergence of, a, of an extraordinarily abundant source of energy, particularly coal in Britain and other parts of northern Europe. I mean, coal in, in Britain in the 19th century was like oil in Saudi Arabia right. in the 20th century, enormous amounts of energy produced in a very concentrated location. And unlike the story we tell ourselves about oil and democracy, the story about coal and democracy was very difficult. It, it seemed that coal had actually made possible the emergence of mass democracy in, in Britain and in other places. Very close correlation between being a major coal producer and becoming uh, 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 not just a sort of liberal constitutional state that just existed for longer, but a state based on a form of mass social democracy. And the sort of general understandings, well, with coal, you get industry. With industry, you get large cities. With large cities, you get mass organization. But I didn't think that was looking closely enough at what it was that created this association with coal and democracy and that made it possible for working populations to make the kinds of demands that led to the emergence of forms of social democracy. And what I argued in the book was that the thing about coal is that as a country like Britain became dependent on one single source of energy and a source of energy available abundantly, but in very few locations in the coal mining regions of the country, the, the producers, the, 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 the companies that controlled that source became vulnerable to minor acts of disruption by those who produced and moved the energy. So the history of democratic politics in Britain and elsewhere was this history of what came to be known as the general strike. Right. The general strike didn't mean the whole country going on strike. It meant these critical interruptions to the supply of energy. Right. For the first time in history. Railways, had, dock workers, coal miners, right? Coal miners. The, the people at the critical sort of choke points right. of the movement of energy. And they used what they actually called, and they, they took this new term, and they said, we can actually sabotage. We can actually, in a very positive sense, they saw it. You know, we have these political demands for improved working conditions, uh, the right to unionize, the right to strike, the right to, to have a, a broader set of, 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 of social democratic protections. And if people won't listen, this is our power of sabotage. And out of that, you get the emergence of, of modern social democratic states, either directly because those general strikes between coal workers and railway workers and dock workers made those demands, or indirectly because the fear of the power that was in the hands of these people who could organize sabotage at key points was so great that political parties made all kinds of concessions in terms of introducing the very first forms of unemployment, of of national health care, of insurance against accidents and illness, um, retirement, um, you know, state retirement pensions, all that was owed to the kind of pressure that was suddenly available. So things that working people had wanted for decades, if not centuries, very quickly came about once you had this vulnerability to sabotage that Cole created. Yeah. This account, I think, is very important because it shows essentially workers 
at the time, looking around, looking at their circumstances, and and essentially analyzing, at that time it wasn't called the economy as an object, but they were examining political economy. You know, I don't know if you've ever read this book, but a few months ago, I don't know why I read this book, but I read Elizabeth Gaskell's uh, North and South. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, no, I haven't read it. But, you know. <laughs> it's, um, it's a very bizarre book about a capitalist who falls in love with like a uh, sort of idealist young woman. Regardless, I thought it was very interesting because it was written in the 1850s and it takes place in the industrialized north of Great Britain. And a lot of the workers, I know it's a fictionalized account, but a lot of the workers are pretty um, sort of well-versed in what they call political economy. They refer to it as political economy. Yeah. And and I thought that that was very fascinating, and maybe we can get to this in a minute, because 70 years later or so, um, the economy becomes this very technical, sort of expertise-driven thing. And and the account that you show uh, says that workers at that time, um, it wasn't as mystified, maybe, as it became to be 100 years later. They looked around, and they identified these choke points. And they use them to their advantage to, yeah, make political claims, make political contestations. And so I want to talk about what oil offered the people in power, governments, capitalists, etc., as a way to fight back against that. Like one of the things you talk about that I think is so fascinating is Winston Churchill, when he was first Lord of the Admiralty, he wanted to transition the Royal Navy's fuel fuel source from coal to oil. And I think he even explicitly said it was because he wanted to, I can't remember his exact quote, but it was essentially, you know, these coal miners and wells, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're going on strike. We have to be able to cripple their ability to go on strike. Like, what are, what are the, some of the advantages that oil would offer to governments at that time to fight back against those sort of political claims being made by the coal steam-based ec- economy workers? Well, the first thing you've got with oil is you've got a second source of energy. You've got an alternative. And part of the power that those coal workers had was that this was the sole source of energy um, or almost the only source of energy for, for industry, for electricity, for all the, the the new industrial world that came into being in the later 19th century. So just having a, a second choice made a difference. So, for example, with Winston Churchill and the decision to convert the Navy from coal to oil, it's always just explained as some sort of military decision about the superior technical qualities of of oil-fired rather than coal-fired steam turbines. Uh, It was, there were efficiency arguments, but what you find in Churchill's own writings is that he was just as obsessed with the fact that a Navy dependent on coal was dependent on coal workers, and particularly coal workers of South Wales who produced all the very high quality coal that was used by the Navy. And therefore, they could go on strike and make these demands for uh, for better conditions and wages and so on. So even though Britain had no oil and had the world's most abundant supplies of, of coal um, or had had up to that point, this decision to make yourself um, more dependent on oil than coal was was motivated in part by wanting to end this this power of, of strike that the coal workers had. Now he did that at a time when um, Iran 
where the British had begun to find oil in the early 20th century, uh, was also a place with strikes and, in fact, with the constitutional revolution going on. But the, the difference was it was much easier to defeat that constitutional revolution because, among other things, it wasn't backed by this kind of energy politics that um, Britain's sort of constitutional transformation into a social democratic state in the same period had driving it. Why with oil? So as, as Iran became an oil producer and other countries of the Middle East, why couldn't oil workers do with oil what coal workers had done with coal in the case of Britain? And that was one of the interesting questions I wanted to think about in the book, because you'd think that there's a similar kind of thing of a sort of becoming dependent on an a, 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 a abundant source of energy with restricted locations. Well, First of all, you could. And in fact, there were wave after wave of strikes in the oil industry in the Middle East across the middle decades of the 20th century, from the 1920s and 30s through to the 1950s and 1960s, and, they, uh, and even into the 1970s. And they played a key role in the sort of mobilizing of political forces in the region. Oil strikes in Saudi Arabia in the 1950s, where people were calling for a constitution, for political rights, the rights to unions, similar things in Iraq, uh, uh, again in, in Iran in the 1930s and the 50s and so on. But oil was different. Uh, first of all, it sort of came second, and therefore it wasn't being used to create a local industrial uh, apparatus of, of wealth production. It, the oil was going to the places that had already industrialized using coal. So there was this enormous sort of distance opened up between the places where it was produced and the places where it was used. So the workers, whereas in, in Britain, you could get that tight coordination between mine workers and dock workers and the railroad workers who moved it. In the Middle East, you were separated all these enormous distances from where you produce the oil to where it was consumed. And the other thing is that Sorry? By pipelines, right? Like, and, and, and then also, oil is a liquid, so it moves right. in pipelines. And you can sabotage pipelines, but they're much harder to interrupt because right. they're quickly repaired than, than rail, where you can really stop the movement of trains uh, uh, through forms of strike. So... Uh, it, it, the fact that it's a liquid, that it moves in pipelines, when it's then transferred from pipelines into tankers, the tankers can take different routes, they're harder to interrupt. All kinds of aspects of the very physical production of oil made it harder for workers to sort of form these alliances that could sabotage um, effectively the supply of energy. So it, it, it's not that they didn't try, and it's not right. that there weren't consequences of that in some ways, but it couldn't have the force that had happened earlier with um, in, in the case of, of, of coal. The other thing that happened with oil, I mentioned before how um, production came to be monopolized by a handful of, of companies, the, the Standard Oil or ExxonMobil and then Shell and BP and a few others. So what happened with the case of oil is that if, if you like, the power of sabotage ended up in other hands. It didn't end up in the hands of the workers, as had been the predominant case with coal. It ended up in the hands of these enormous firms right. who themselves had and exercised this ability to sabotage or interrupt the flow of oil, because what they would do is not say, oh, there's lots of oil, let's produce it and make sure everybody's got all the oil they need. They would say, well, let's 
produce only so much so that we can charge this extraordinarily high price for the stuff because in the Middle East in particular, it comes out of the ground very, very easily. It's very, very cheap to, to produce, but we could sell it at this much, much higher price set by the people who produce it in Texas. So as long as you can have that power of sabotage, that power of interrupting supply, you could use it not as workers to increase the benefits flowing to workers, but rather as business firms to increase the business, the, the, the benefits, that is to say the profits, flowing into the hands of those firms. So sabotage didn't go away. It just, in the case of oil, ended up in the hands of corporations rather than in the hands of, of organized workers. Would you say that this is um, an accurate sort of framing? You know, you could say no. I mean, you could say that it's too simplistic. But the way that I kind of look at this is that it's a class struggle, right? You've got the workers using um, fossil fuel politics, in their case, coal, <clears throat> the localized use of coal and distribution. You know, you use coal not very far from the coal face. Um, and on you know on that side the proletariat using it on that side and then uh, you know capital and governments on the other side looking at the situation and saying how do we fight back against this one of the ways that we can fight back against this is through a transition from using mainly coal and steam power to using oil i mean thinking about it in that ter in those terms would you say that that's a correct sort of characterization of it i i think you know, that's one element that goes into the history of energy that unfolds. And uh, you mentioned the case of Winston Churchill and deciding in part that the moving the Navy to the use of oil is, is to weaken the power of coal workers. And you actually see a very similar story um, after the Second World War in the U.S. Um, right. 1948-49, there's an enormous wave of strikes, biggest wave of strikes ever in U.S. history uh, that bring the trains to a halt. Truman actually moves to have the U.S. Army taking over the country, the running of the country's railroad system. And one of the responses of that actually in the U.S. is, is to sort of force through the transition from coal to oil as the major source of, of, of energy in the, in the railroad system in the U.S. So you can find particular points where, where that decision is made and is made for those very specific reasons of trying to weaken the power of organized labor and constantly finding in oil an energy source that is harder for workers themselves to sabotage the flow off for the reasons we talked about. So you can see that at, at, at different points. I'm not sure you can see a sort of grand strategic picture um, right. in the world economy as a whole, but, but you don't have to because if it's being made in these individual cases, then it has the cumulative effect anyway. Well, so you write about how the sort of transition oil was was not only beneficial for challenging those political claims of the workers, but... And I think this is, for me, maybe the most fascinating part of the book, how it came to be the sort of centerpiece of how the global economy was restructured following World War II. So, you know, a lot of people know about Bretton Woods and they know about the Marshall Plant and all this. But I don't know. Could you maybe just give us a rundown of what the sort of post-war Bretton Woods system was and how oil came to be built into it? So uh, after the Second World War as international financial and trade relations are re being rebuilt, 
there has to be some new basis for the international financial order. It was understood that the the collapse of economies before the war and the rise of fascism in particular happened in significant part because of the collapse of the international financial order, the system of relations among different currencies around the world and different, um, not just financial, but national production system that sort of guaranteed the value of everybody's national currency. You needed some system. The old system had been based on the gold standard. Everybody keeps um, a reserve of gold in their banks, and then they issue paper currency based on uh, and tied to the value of that gold. That wasn't that at all collapsed. So after the, uh, after the war, a new system is, is, is put in place, essentially tied to the value of the US dollar. The US has become by far the dominant both uh, manufacturing and also um, financial power in the world. It also has a huge amount of um, the, the reserves of the world's gold. And it starts, um, it agrees to tie the value of the dollar to uh, uh, gold reserves that it has. And every other country agrees to peg the value of its own currency to a fixed number of dollars. And that's the way in which the the, 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 the relations between different uh, sort of national currency systems and ultimately international trade and the, and the, the pricing um, and balancing of flows of international trade all come to be based on the U.S. dollar and U.S. reserves of gold. That's Bretton Woods, and it lasts from 1944 when it's established in conference um, in the resort of Bretton Woods, where it gets its name from, um, until it all begins to collapse in the late 60s, early 70s. And there's a variety of reasons for that, which we can go into. That history is fairly well known. Um, what I wanted to do was to sort of add to that a number of ways in which the flow of oil and the abundance of oil is important to that story. Oil was then and continues to be by far the largest commodity in world trade. And so any attempt to come up with a financial system that is going to organize the pricing of um, of, of trade and uh, the relative value of currencies is, among other things, something to be engineered out of the actual flow of oil. You can come up with all the agreements you want. But you've got to tie that to who controls the production of oil and how oil is priced because of the dominant role of oil. So that was part of the story I was trying to tell. But I was also linking it, and you, you alluded to this part of the argument earlier, to the fact that in this same period, you have the emergence of the idea of the economy. Everybody thinks that dates back to the 19th century or to ancient Greeks or something. But one of the things I've, I've argued in this book and in other writings is that it was only really in this period between the 1940s onwards that we all came to think that we have this thing called the economy and economists began to talk about it. And uh, and I think that's wrapped up in this same story of what that post-war financial order was and, again, to, to oil. Yeah, I mean... You write that I think before the 19, maybe 20s, 30s, 40s, no one referred to the economy. And like right. I was mentioning a minute ago, you know, reading North and South, it's, nobody refers to the economy. They're talking about political economy. And it was yeah. kind of more, you know, and, and you can pick up on this reading Marx, too. That it was more understood as a process rather than an, an object. 
Exactly. Yeah, you didn't put a the on the beginning. Economy right. um, was a word in the 19th century. And its original meaning, as in words, similar words like economize, was had to do with sort of prudence and um, the, 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 the prudent use of scarce resources or the management or government of resources in a way that sort of benefited the public interest. So economy referred to that management or to those processes that had to be managed. And when you used a word like political economy, you weren't talking about the politics of the economy, you were talking about the economy, that is to say, the prudent management of the polity of the political order as a whole, um, based as that would be in questions of wealth, but also of population, of public health, of all kinds of things. So that's what economy referred to in the 19th century, um, and even into the early 20th century. But then somewhere in the interwar period in the 20s and 30s, this other meaning begins to emerge, and you can trace it in the writings of key economists of that period, people like John Maynard Keynes and others, um, where uh, there they're both they're looking for a word, but they're looking for a way of trying to make sense of uh, new kinds of ways in which government is attempting to manage a whole set of processes around finance, employment, industry, and so on. And the word that emerges for this object that they're trying to manage and control is the economy. So they add the definite article, the to the word economy and start saying, well, we actually have this distinct object that we're in charge of managing uh, called the economy. And the role of government is sort of reconceived away from broader notions of sort of welfare and well-being um, that might include many aspects of, of, of human well-being to the management of the relations that make up this thing called the economy. That's part of the change. The other thing is that, um, and part of what makes it possible to imagine this totality as something can be managed, is that you can actually simplify it right down to a few numbers. Right. So you can start measuring and counting this thing called, that in those days was called something like national income. Today we call it GDP, mm -hmm. gross domestic product. You can take all the different exchanges and relations of, of, of employment and purchase and so on, and you can boil them all down to one number. And of course, statistically, that's a incredibly both complex thing to do, but also a vast work of simplification, because you can't right. actually measure every financial exchange happening over an entire country over months or years. But if you sort of sample according to new statistical methods and, and make assumptions and take averages, you can actually come up with a number and say, well, this is actually the sum total of everything produced. So on the one hand, you've built this vast thing statistically called the economy that you can sort of measure and manage. But on the other hand, you've actually built it by making it something very, very small. You've just reduced it to right. a, a few numbers. Um, so that's the kind of, of, of process I was trying to understand in the in part, beginning in the interwar period, but really um, sort of uh, uh, consolidated after the war. Um, you know, before the 1940s, when you said the economy, people didn't understand what you meant. You had to specify. And it was only in the 50s and 60s that it comes to take the, the sort of everyday obvious sense we, we grant it today. And that had in turn a relationship to oil, which, again, has many aspects, but one that's fairly easy to grasp is that 
or significant about the economy was not just the sort of simplification of a vast world into a few numbers, but you could calculate those numbers in such a way that every year they grow. And you come up with this idea of the world as a world that is sort of defined around an idea of of growth, right. not not necessarily you know material increase in objects, not population, which used to be the main thing people thought of growing, not even cities which might have grown before, but just growth, growth in the abstract. And I think oil is very important to that because this abundance of cheap energy makes it possible to to sort of think and act in those terms in ways that uh, that are quite novel in the in the middle decades of the twentieth century. So the book tries to tie together the a story about oil with a story about how we came to believe that the sort of fundamental object of our collective life is this is this thing called the economy. Yeah, I think this is really the most important part, maybe, and maybe this is kind of what I'm trying to get at by examining this section of the book. You had written about how earlier in the 19th century there were economists like William Stanley Jevons, I think is his yeah. name, who were looking at if coal was exhaustible or not, how much longer uh, you know, you could continue to mine coal and still be able to continue economic growth. Well, yeah. oil offered a way for them, or not just oil, but the creation of the economy as this system of everyday transactions, numbers, as you said earlier, uh, boiling down all these statistics to GDP, you could essentially continue limitless growth um, without, uh, and, and even more importantly, have oil prices continuously drop um, without, uh, you know, pressing upon the uh, limitations of the physical environment. Um, and so I think that that is the, the key part here. It's the limitless growth aspect of the creation of this object known as the economy. And to take it even one step further, you write about, and maybe this is maybe what we could talk about in the next section, a few decades later you had the creation of an, a new object called the environment. Um, and the process for creating that was paradoxically uh, – oil companies were very heavily involved in that process. I wanted to talk about like the 1960s um, because one of the things I found fascinating was the creation of um, the shipping container, for example. You had this new working class of the 1960s. Um, like how, how did the switch to oil transform the working class throughout the middle of the 20th century? Well, it, it depends a little bit on which part of the world you're looking at. So, um, talked about Western Europe, particularly sort of Northwest Europe, and the critical importance of coal miners and coal mining and their alliances with others who move this key energy resource. And of course, they go that that the, that political alliance gets weaker and weaker, and the power of the general strike, which, as I've explained, is this critical intervention by a few key workers weakens and weakens and weakens uh, across those countries. And there's, there's similar stories in, in other places that have been um, very dependent on coal. But in general, there is a, a weakening of the kinds of rights and abilities and political powers that organized workers had managed to 
to gain, um, thanks in, in, in particular to the dependence on coal. And so in a way, you can sort of think of the transition from a completely coal-based system of production to one that is equally, if not more, dependent on oil as the original kind of industrial outsourcing. Um, because, you know, we think of outsourcing as jobs moving to Mexico or moving right. to China or whatever. But, you know, the first big outsourcing of jobs was jobs moving to Iran and jobs moving to Saudi Arabia or jobs moving to Venezuela or Mexico um, because you outsourced energy production long before you outsourced industrial production. Um, that was already, you know, the, the energy production were, was, was happening um, much earlier with a, a consequent weakening of um, those political forces that had gained their strength from dependence on, on that energy. Of course, that's going to be followed up, and the story of the shipping container is an important part of it, by the ability then to outsource not just um, oil production in particular, but, but, um, but later manufacturing. Um, once you have that, those forms of you know, intermodal transport where you can put things in a big metal box at the factory and it can stay in the same box until it gets to the warehouse at the point of distribution, you can move not just, you know, as it were, you can make manufactured goods almost as liquid as oil, just as easily to ship um, uh, from place to place, uh, thanks to the shipping container. So there's important history there of, of the shipping container. Um, but the but the larger story, again, as we know, is that outsourcing of, of, of manufacturing um, and the use of that to um, uh, drive down wages in um, other industrialized countries and um, to weaken labor unions and so on. You've got the entire story. Um, since the late 60s, 1970s, of that weakening of of labor unions and of manufacturing bases across um, much of the industrialized world, um, which again is 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 in part a history of energy as well. Well, so that, I think that brings us up to the 1960s and 70s. I mean, you wrote about how the creation of this oil-centered Bretton Woods system in the 1940s created this disjuncture that kind of completely exploded in the late 60s and early 70s. So, you know, we understand that now as what we call maybe the neoliberal turn, uh, a turn to more neoliberal politics. But your book talks about how central the energy crisis and the oil shock was to that transition process. So um, how maybe talk about why this event, and you can even talk if you want about how the energy crisis itself was kind of a manufactured thing by the oil industry, but can you talk about how it was all crucial to setting up the pivot to neoliberal politics? And and maybe even a further question might be, how can our modern energy politics explain the rolling back of rights that were won in the era of coal and a steam-based economy? Um, yeah, again, it's a complicated story um, with many parts, though, just, you know, I think just the business of trying to bring these different parts together and tell them as an interconnected story rather than separate stories of the history of coal or the history of labor unions or the history of neoliberalism as an ideology um, uh, or, or the history of energy and the environment and trying to find these connections between them is what the book's trying to do. But of course, that does make it a little difficult to um, to pull them all together in, in, um, in a conversation like this. Um, 
so uh, and, and we haven't even touched on another big part of it, which is um, the arms industry and right. how that connected <laughs> into um, uh, oil and oil profits and how to recirculate those forms of, of, of finance. So we could even get onto that later. But um, but to stick with the oil crisis and then the rise of neoliberalism. So there's a battle going on between the oil producer states, particularly in the Middle East, and um, the oil companies where the oil producer states want a greater share of the profits. That's portrayed in the West as a demand for a price increase, whereas in fact it was a, 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 a demand for a different rate of taxation of profits. Um, in a way, the oil companies are sort of looking for a crisis so that all this can be seen as something outside of their hands and to be blamed on others. And that opportunity that the crisis is building over a number of years, but the opportunity really comes in 1973 with the 73 um, the October 73 Arab-Israeli war. Um, these are two completely separate things that happen to have one or two actors in common, like Saudi Arabia. Um, but OPEC is one organization, and that's been making its demands over prices. And then the war is another thing that doesn't involve many of the members of OPEC, and that OPEC isn't directly involved in. But separately, in that war, um, essentially, the Saudis say to the US, stop blocking um, a solution to the Palestine question, or we will impose an embargo on oil. The US refuses to listen to that, and the uh, Saudi Arabia, and um, in particular, leads the imposition of an embargo on supplies of oil to the US. It actually has all, no significant effect on supplies of oil to the US, because there's no significant cut in oil production anywhere, partly because other oil producers actually increase oil production. Iraq um, criticizes the Saudis of actually doing all this in a way that lets the oil companies off the hook and uh, refuses to join the boycott and uh, increases production. But anyway, it sort of appears as a great crisis and it's announced as a crisis in the US and there's a run on the gas stations and the price of oil goes up because suddenly gas stations run out of oil and you get this crisis. And it allows, um, it makes it possible to quadruple the price of oil and to blame the whole thing on these 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 avaricious um, uh, Arab states that that want to demand so much money for their oil. So the story is completely misunderstood, but it's very convenient that um, that this transformation in the oil price can happen in a way where the oil companies take none of the blame. Um, what it enables them to do is two things. They know they're going to have to um, give in and pay this higher tax rate. Um, they actually know something much worse is is, is on its way, um, which is that the Arab states and other producer states are actually going to take control of the oil production themselves directly. And so what the oil companies want to do is open up oil production in other parts of the world, West Africa, Alaska, the North Sea, and so on. And they can't do that at prevailing rates at which oil is sold. But by having this um, quadrupling of the price, it becomes economic to produce oil in the North Sea and Alaska and places like that. So um, it works out pretty well. It means that as they lose control of oil fields in the Middle East, they gain control of completely new areas of oil production in places like Nigeria and the North Sea and Alaska. So that's one part of the story that I try and give a slightly different history of in the book. Um, 
How does that all relate to um, <clears throat> the history of neoliberalism? Um, there's there's one fairly simple thing, which is that the oil companies suddenly find themselves awash in vast additional profits, and one of the things they spend these some of a, a little bit of their um, additional profits on is the funding of these new things in Washington called think tanks. Um, and <laughs> there, there'd always be one or two little organizations that like to sort of push right-wing um, policy views on things. But uh, that was not a big part of intellectual or political life before the 1970s. Right. Suddenly you have um, organizations in Washington and a little bit elsewhere in New York um, uh, uh, that um, are enormously well-funded, with oil money being by far the biggest source of money, begin promoting an entirely different view of how political financial relations should be organized, very different from the post-war, much more sort of welfare-based, social democratic-based kinds of settlements where workers as well as um, owners of, of business were all meant to benefit. Instead, we can't afford that anymore. We've got to tighten our belts because the price of oil has gone up so much and that belt tightening, um, that paying um, of a price is going to be borne by um, workers and not by the owners of, of companies or the owners of capital. And I, I think the rise of those think tanks sort of pushing this neoliberal view is a very important element in all that. There are other elements as well. Um, uh, you know, one could talk, again, one could resume the story about Bretton Woods and the transformation of the financial system. Um, you know, another way of thinking about transformations over that period is around a sort of issue of financialization, which could be related to the same set of transformations. Yeah, I mean, I think that you kind of make it explicit at one point that at this time, the oil companies, they just simply needed new means of generating income increases. One of those was opening up new markets, for example, selling arms, quite literally. And they did this under the pretense of this idea that we didn't explore in the last segment, but um, I should have, the imperative for security. And the rise of talking about securing oil as a way of, uh, you know, creating sort of geopolitical alliances, because this obviously took place in the context of the Cold War. And so selling arms was a very useful uh, means of both laundering this idea of securing access to oil and also returning dollars back to America. So, you know, that was one way. And then, you know, Quite literally, another way was for, and oil companies eventually started arguing for this, for abandoning the Bretton Woods system entirely. I guess we didn't quite really go through point by point how this occurred, but I think, I think the important part is that oil companies were central to the process of abandoning and dismantling Bretton Woods. Yeah, I mean, and the oil companies, I mean, I said at the beginning when we were talking about futures markets, um, you know, oil is significant because it's a major source of energy, but oil is equally significant because it's a major so source of profits because it can be sold at many multiples of the cost of producing it. Right. Uh, uh, 
it, it's it's always sold at, at the price that corresponds to wherever is the most expensive place to produce it in the world. And that sort of sets the, the marginal price, and then everybody else ups their price to that same level. But everybody else is still producing it at a fraction of that price. And that enormous difference between the cost of production and the amount you can sell it for um, means that oil, um, you know, we think of it as this strategic thing that we need for, for transportation and industry and so on. But it's this strategic thing for making extraordinarily the high levels of, of corporate profits and the oil companies were for until the rise of of, of IT were by far the the, the, the biggest um, corporations and the biggest sources of profits and um, uh, you know completely separate from their role in, in in supplying a source of energy although the two are interconnected so of course that also means that they have a very close relationship to large banks and each of the major oil companies actually sort of had a bank that it was either originally tied to the founding of or that it worked closely with and so on and as you say one of the things that happens uh, with the shift in the way oil is priced and controlled in the beginning in the late 60s and through the 70s is that um, uh, as a result of those um, crises the producer states um, Iran Saudi Arabia and others are ending up with enormous income themselves and they don't quite know uh, not only what to do with that because there's, there's far more money coming in than they can spend. And one of the things they're encouraged to do is to spend it all on arms. Um, right. So part of the book tries to look at that history of arms and then the doctrines of security that are sort of manufactured around this as if there was some threat to this system of oil production from the Soviet Union or somewhere, which is entirely manufactured and bogus. The only threat the Soviet Union represents through all this is it might somehow find a way to export its own oil to the West and threaten this, this system of um, of, of sort of monopoly and control. Um, but so the banks become involved um, in this and then the, the arms manufacturers and most, you know, very large number of the, the largest American manufacturing corporations um, become or have been arms manufacturers. So they get tied into this. So that's another part of the story that the book um, attempts to tie into this sort of rethinking. And, you know, don't take for granted the notion of, you know, security and a threat to oil and how this is you know something very vulnerable to um to some military threat from elsewhere um the threat was to this extraordinary system of profits and this extraordinary system of um bank created finance that was tied in with those profits and so on and that's what was vulnerable and um that's what had to then be um, reinforced by the creation of think tanks and the funding of experts who would reproduce this language about security and vulnerability and how the very future of the West is is is, a, is made vulnerable by what might happen politically in the Middle East. Right. I mean, I should have mentioned this at the top of the show, but just this week, I mean, it's really shocking to or jarring maybe to listen to this history and then to fast forward to the current day. I mean, obviously, the modern, the, the current oil companies are extremely profitable still. But just this week, I don't know if you saw this, but Exxon was kicked off the Dow Jones. Um, which, I mean, 
you know, I before the pandemic started, uh, I think maybe in January or February, there was this report released, I think it was by the government of Finland. Did you see this about how it was, I think it was the Geological Survey of Finland, it was part of their Ministry of Economic Affairs. But essentially, the gist of it was that oil is becoming uneconomical to exploit and that it could derail the global financial system. I mean, mm-hmm. it's fascinating to, like I said, it's almost jarring to go from the world that we were just describing to the one now that seems mm-hmm. to demonstrate that while oil is obviously very profitable for the people that produce it, it is becoming increasingly uh, expensive to produce mm-hmm. it. What, what accounts for that? I mean, and what might that spell for the future? I mean, obviously, there's still plenty of oil out there, but why is it becoming more uh, expensive to produce? Um, and why, And I think maybe an even more important question is, why is the oil industry so laden down with debt? Well, um, it's a big question, and there's many different aspects of it. So, um, you know, when we think of the oil industry, we think first of all of of, of the of the huge multinational um, firms that historically have controlled so much of it: um, Exxon Mobil, and Chevron, and Shell, and BP, and Total in France, and so on. Um, they face a problem, which is that um, uh, they are constantly interested in finding new sources of oil. But the new sources that are of oil, uh, they've mostly been known about for a long time, but they haven't been exploited because they're places where it's more and more difficult and more and more expensive to produce it. Um, so it's deep offshore, or it's in the Arctic, or it's... Um, uh, or, or it's this tight oil that has to be produced by fracking, which is um, not so much expensive as it were geologically, but the trouble is there's the, 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 the well only produces for a year or two, and then it's, there's very little oil flow. So unlike traditional oil wells that might flow for uh, 10, 20, 50 years. So they can only find, they can, the, the oil they can find is mostly very, very expensive oil. At the same time, the, the, the Saudis, the Iraqis, the Iranians, the Russians are still, you know, the biggest other oil producers are still producing from traditional wells that are much, much cheaper to produce from. Um, so there's a there's, there's not necessarily an overall shortage of oil. There's a shortage of oil from which you can make very large profits. And that's what's facing um, that's one of the things that's facing the oil companies. And one of the ways you see that, not so much among those big firms, but the smaller firms that were created or expanded by um, uh, developing the fracking of oil in, in the U.S., is that that industry as a whole, the tight oil industry, has still never never made a profit. Right. I mean, individual firms have made a profit. Um, firms that speculated successfully in land and sold on the leases to others made a profit. But as a whole, the capital um, that has been sunk into producing this boom in American oil supply has actually been a loss. Um, uh, so uh, it's actually hard um, as an industry as a whole to to make money once oil becomes that much more difficult um, to produce. The other problem, of course, is the climate catastrophe um, and the switch away from oil. 
um, which as oil becomes more expensive to produce and as the oil begins to, uh, the price can, continues to creep up again from 40 to 50 and maybe $60 a barrel, um, it becomes more and more economical to switch to other sources of energy, particularly as that is driven by the policies of governments in industrialized countries everywhere other than the US that is pushing very hard to decarbonize the, the the world economy within 30 years. Um, so, as it were, the oil companies are being pushed from both sides by this um, uh, difficulty of finding cheap oil and the, um, the move away from uh, dependence on oil for particularly for, for transportation and for, for, for heating. Um, so that's the kind of bind they find themselves in. Um, you can see the results of that with the European oil companies. They've mostly, the, more and more of them are announcing a transformation into not being oil companies anymore um, to different degrees, differing degrees. The, 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 the Italians, the, the French, um, BP, and so on, uh, moving, they don't want to abandon oil because they still make big, good profits, but they are announcing they're becoming energy companies and they're going to buy wind farms and, and, and things like that. Um, the American companies, much less so. They, they seem much more wedded to uh, oil, partly because the, 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 the political situation is different in the U.S., yeah, it seems that um, this notion of energy independence is still very prominent in American mm -hmm. politics. It's—I it, mean, it's been seared into our minds in many ways, in mm -hmm. the same way that anti-communism has. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I'm from Southeast New Mexico, but that is the Permian Basin. Um, yeah. And every few years, they discover a new shell play. And, uh, you know, I think just in December of last year, they discovered a new one, and it was massive. Trump made a big announcement of it. And then three, four months later, you've got a complete bust. Uh, people unemployed. You can walk around town and see, uh, you know, uh, banks essentially uh you know coming to take assets and stuff like that you know so i mean it's 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 a process it's a process that is very real but it would it is so sort of disorienting to hear on on one hand like we've got more oil than we know what to do with and then on the other hand like well we can't make any money doing it so yeah yeah and you know they're two sides of the same coin because they're um and and part of the reason you get this oscillation between sort of abundance and fortunes being made and then crisis and and people either going out of, of business if they're companies or you know the thousands and thousands who lose their jobs um and that's because as it were we're sort of working on this edge where um it's it's hard to find cheap oil you can only find and therefore oil supply becomes restricted and the price starts to go up um that makes much more expensive oil um uh, uh financially viable to produce um it's produced and you get something like the the fracking boom um but then, of course, there's too much, and the price collapses. And if that coincides with either financial collapse, um, uh, as in 2007, or with um, uh, one introduced by a global pandemic, th that complicates the situation as well, uh, on top of the move away from oil being pushed by um, the uh, uh, the, the climate emergency. And, you know, it's an interesting thing 
about the climate emergency because the climate emergency, of course, is asking us not to think about now, but much more so to think about where we'll be in 20 years and 30 years um, time. Uh, and you know, the thing about the business world and about profit making is that it always seems to be so focused on the present in in where um, where profits are going to come from now and not thinking about and not worrying about um, a generation from now when you know on on the way we're heading now we'll be dealing with uh, uh, you know a, a climate emergency that threatens the very possibility of the kinds of lives we have. Um, so there seems to be a sort of disjuncture between the very short-sighted nature of, of businesses like oil companies and the long-term thinking um, needed by uh, uh, by things like the climate emergency. But actually, I think that's where the point of vulnerability comes. Yeah. Because um, while it's true that um, a business wants profits, you know, this year and not in 30 years' time, and it is sort of in that sense short-sighted. Um, they also exist um, mostly to sell shares to shareholders. And the value of the share for the shareholder is actually only partially based on this year's profits. It's actually an expectation of future profits over you know the next five, ten years. And that, that's actually where I think um, oil companies in particular are vulnerable to political pressure. And I think some of the most useful political organizing against oil companies has begun to look at, okay, let's actually read their annual reports, or let's actually read their filings to the Securities and Exchange Commission and say, what are those filings and what are those reports actually based on in terms of not the profits they're going to make this year, but the projections for 10 years from now about how much oil they're going to be able to produce. And if, you know, if that's not based in any kind of political reality, um, based on assumptions about um, just carrying on business as usual, then you can begin to expose that and show how absurd the assumption is that we'll still be um, as dependent on oil 10 years from now and 20 years from now as we are today. And you can open up in a certain way that that point of that very specific, almost sort of technical point of vulnerability in a way that sort of parallels what we were talking about before about sort of looking for where the vulnerable point is in some complex operation. I think it is actually in the way in which the climate emergency is forcing us to calculate where things will be 10 and 20 years from now in a way that never used to be the case. Well, I mean, I think it's very important to think about because it's entirely likely that we are entering into a period of extreme global turbulence, especially if we are transitioning away from this specific fossil fuel. You know, I think that your book shows, I mean, among many things, um, it shows that in those moments of transition, uh, there are, as you were saying, there are vulnerabilities that can be um, exploited and that can be used for political claims uh, and contestations of our own. And I think that, you know, it depends on what day of the week. Some days I feel very optimistic. Some days <laughs> I feel very pessimistic that that uh, may not be happening anytime soon. But, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time left. So, uh, <laughs> But I kind of just wanted to, to maybe get your thoughts on, this is purely conjecture and speculative, but like, 
let's say that capitalism does survive a transition from one fossil fuel to whatever is coming next. We want to call them renewables or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. What what would you tell future uh, environmentalists, leftists, uh, workers, etc. For um, what would you tell them about? how energy politics can create space for political development, for political liberation, um, and so on? Well, it's difficult when one is sort of talking about this horizon of 10 or 20 years to sort of point to specific things to, you know, to do or not to do or to, to, to look for or not to look for. I mean, I think the first thing I, I would say is to understand just how important energy has been to the history of democratic politics, of left politics, of creating um, uh, forms of social welfare that have been fundamental to the improvement of collective life for many, many millions of people in the course of the 20th century. That yes, that came out of social movements and it came out of political parties and labor movements and so on. Um, But the the vulnerability of large industrial economies to the question of where their energy comes from and how their energy is produced and who controls that that flow of energy has been absolutely critical to the ability to have those achievements or not. And that's we are indeed over the next two, three decades going through an extraordinary energy transition. Then thinking about how sources of energy are going to be controlled um, uh, is really thinking about the future of democratic politics um, uh, in a fundamental way. So it's not that I can sort of say, well, as long as you sort of build that kind of energy system, you'll have that kind of politics because there's too many factors. But just to be aware that um, uh, on on the forms of control, the the, the, the ownership of um, infrastructures, the root of a pipeline, the whole thing. These are not just, you know, they may be environmental concerns, but they are um, uh, also and fundamentally you know, democratic concerns. They're, they're, they're concerns about having um, a form of politics in which voices get heard that otherwise nobody has, nobody in power has to listen to. So that's the sort of for me, was the most general lesson I learned from writing a book about uh, the history of oil politics and en- energy politics, that there's there's so much that's connected in there um, in the question of energy. And that, um, you know, that doesn't mean, oh, once we have renewables as, 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 the, as, the, as the largest source of energy, there'll be no problem anymore, because there's many ways to organize the, the ownership and control of of wind farms, of of um, transmission systems, and so on. But that's where that's where I think a lot of the politics lies um, in in thinking about where a political system is vulnerable to to forms of democratic accountability. Well, um, Tim, I think that pretty much covers it for me. Um, I mean, I've really enjoyed talking to you, picking your brain. Um, I'm sorry I've been a little all over the place, but. Uh, it's 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 a it's a complicated story and yeah. um and I think that like if we're talking about transitioning away from oil we're talking about a massive um refiguring of the global financial system and when you 
think about that, then you have to ask, well, wh- how did it get that way? How did how did oil get to be so tightly interwoven into how the global economic system is structured? Um, and and I think that it's important to ask that question because the only way we're going to be able to move past it and create a new world is to understand how the old one was built and how we can take it apart. Um, and so, and this is one of the reasons why I like your book so much, um, because it helps us understand how things got to be the way that they are. Um, and so, you know, if I could just encourage everybody to go buy it, um, it's called Carbon Democracy. Uh, it's from Verso Books, um, from our good pals over at the, the Verso Loft in New York. Um, but yeah, is there anything else you'd like to uh, close out on, Tim? No, I think um, I have really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I'm working on a new book that is going to take on some of these stories. It'll it, it'll be out um, uh, probably in a year or two. Um, Great. That, that's going to push forward some of these questions, particularly about finance um, uh, and um, the relationship between finance and this strange thing called the business firm that has come to sort of govern the way our, our, our economic and social lives are, are run. So I'm still thinking about all these questions, and uh, there will be another volume down the road. It's great to hear. Um, well, hopefully by then, uh, we'll still be uh, going on as a podcast, and we can have you on to talk about it again. I look forward to it. I'm going out on that oil field. Tell me it's a payday over there. I'm going out on the oil field. Tell me it's a payday over there. Gonna care my cards and my dice, and I ain't gonna play nothing fair. Gonna carry my old Winchester, my 38 special too. Gonna carry my old Winchester. My 38 special too Because I don't know what may happen I may have some shooting to do Oh, play it, Willie Kelly I may care a bottle of whiskey with me Cause now I feel